<laughs> oh dear. How's everyone doing? Are you all okay? Good. Uh, I think we, there, uh, are there a couple of people who, here who are from Mosaic in Berlin? Is that right? You guys here. Welcome. Great to have you here. And also, um, I mean, a very warm welcome to all of you, particularly if this is your first time here. We hope you feel really welcome with us. But we do have one couple here. Uh, Benjamin and Indy, why don't you just stand up and say hello quickly? Give them a warm welcome. These guys moved here on Thursday this week. Uh, Benjamin starts a, a new job in a couple of weeks' time, and Indy starts university later this year. But they got married, what, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. So they... they um, went to Iceland on their honeymoon, went back to the UK, said goodbye to their family, and then they moved here on Thursday. So please give them a really warm welcome and look after them over the next, the next couple of weeks. Right, we're in uh, John 17. Uh, before we do that, we've, we've got a, an event coming up in uh, two weeks' time, uh, which is called SENT, which uh, is a conference, we, well, kind of a conference. It's like a Friday evening and a sort of Saturday morning, a bit of Saturday afternoon, uh, where we, we're going to try and gather um, the whole church together. Um, so if you're around, you're definitely invited. Uh, and even if it's your first time here or you wouldn't call this church your home, we want to invite you to come and be part of it as well. The, we're, we're doing it for two reasons. One, when you spend time uh, together like that over a kind of an extended period, on a Sunday we get a couple of hours and there's, uh, there's lots of busyness going on and uh, we have lots of kind of small uh, snippets of conversations and then we're on our way. Uh, but we're a church that really believes in community and building life and doing life together. So uh, times like this where we get the opportunity to spend a little bit more time and just get to know one another, to worship God together, uh, really important. And we want to always leave space for that to happen. So that's one reason we're doing it. And a second reason is we just want to talk a little bit more about uh, who we are, where we're going as a church, and we'd love you to come and be part of that. So it costs uh, 10 euros just so we can pay for the venue and pay for some lunch for us to eat. Uh, if you can't afford that, that's totally fine. Just come and talk to me and we'll sort of shoehorn you in through the back door. We want to make it so that everybody can come along. So don't, please don't let money be an object if that's a problem for you. Um, but just to let you know about that, and please, if you do want to come, then book in this week just so we know who's actually going to be around. And uh, if you don't, Len's going to get cross with you all. Isn't that right, Len? Yeah. Yeah, good. Thank you. Perfect response. Great. I think I'm going to get cross with him in a minute. Right. Right, here we go. We're gonna, we're, uh, we've been working through a series on uh, John chapter 17. Uh, John is a book in the New Testament. Um, it's uh, 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 what, what would we call a... Uh, it, it's... Um, my words have lost me there for a moment. <laughs> it's a book written by John to us to tell us about the life of Jesus. In a way, it's kind of an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And we're kind of uh, focusing in on, on uh, uh, chapter 17. And chapter 17 of John is a beautiful chapter because what we do is you, you, get this, you get to kind of pull back the curtain and you see a moment of Jesus' prayer life. We get to see Jesus praying to his Father, and we've been working through that over a couple of weeks uh, in a series we've called Future Church. 
Um, so uh, last week we were talking about what it means for the church to be family, for the church to walk in unity together, and where does our unity come from, and how do we build family life in a dysfunctional world. Uh, and this week we're going to talk about what it means to live as a live as a, a minority, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about that. But let's just read these verses and then I'll pray. This is John 17, verses 14 to 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are, for everything you've done for us that as uh, those of us here who would call ourselves believers in you, followers in you, we can sing these wonderful songs about your grace, your mercy lavished on us. We can come to a God who we can know and experience. You're not just written about in a dusty book. You're not just some myth or fable or story. Jesus, you're real, you're alive. You've defeated death. You're this risen king that we worship. And now you've sent your spirit to be with your people in all aspects of our life that we can know the helper with us. And you've called us into this community, this family, and we get to serve you and build this community and to reach our city together, serving you by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. So I thought the best way to start this morning would be with some statistics, because everyone likes statistics, right? Everyone's wild about statistics. Let's have a look at uh, some things here. This is some statistics about the church in our, in our country, the church in the Netherlands. Um, in 1966, that's 51 years ago, 33% uh, of people would have described themselves as outside of the church, not part of any sort of church organization, that would include uh, Catholics, Protestants, um, all sorts of different kind of versions of the church, if you could call it that. Uh, in 2015, so two years ago, that had gone up to 68%, 68% of people who would say they're not part of any church in any way at all. Um, and amongst people uh, who would be under the age of 30, so kind of young people-ish, uh, it's about 80% would say they have no connection with, with any church whatsoever. We cycled past a church, our, our local uh, kind of mainline Protestant church in the city. We cycled past it on the way here this morning, and they were ringing the bell. People were going in, and we saw about, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 people walking in. And uh, I, don't think, I didn't see anybody who was under the age of 60. It uh, was a very much a, 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 an older congregation. That would be true for, for many of that uh, 32% would be normally people who would be uh, more senior in age. But then you might think, well, actually, 32% that sounds like quite a lot from your experience. Well, in 1966, uh, 
47% of people in the country as a whole would say they were theists, as in that theos means God, so that's somebody that believes in either God or gods. It doesn't really quite matter, we're not necessarily talking about the Christian God that we would worship, but 47% of people would believe there's some sort of God, some sort of higher power. Uh, in 2015, uh, only 14% of people would say that. So you've got a whole bunch of people there who claim to be part of a church, but don't believe in God at all. Which, uh, if you think about that, is kind of a strange thing to, th- to, to believe. And then if we drill even further into it, of those people that would say they're part of a church, uh, only 17% of Catholics and only 51%, only half of Protestants would be theists, would believe in God. So only half of people who would say, I'm a Protestant, I'm part of the Protestant church, only half of them would believe that God exists. If you look at 13% of Catholics, 43% of Protestants would believe that the Bible is the word of God. So of that 32% that claim to be part of a church, the number of people that actually have any active faith, you know, we were singing that song, kind of listing off a bunch of things that we believe. We believe in God the Father, the Holy Spirit. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There's a whole, so, so many people in our country don't believe any of that at all. Not even a little bit. In, in Amsterdam alone, just in our city, people claim somewhere between, depending on who you talk to, somewhere between 1% and 3% of people would attend church, would, would go to, uh, on a Sunday, a, a gathering like this. Uh, whereas 50 years ago, uh, or the end of the Second World War, sort of 75, 80 years ago, that would have been maybe 80% of people. Now we're talking 1, 2, 3% of people. And that would be true not just of this city, but all across Europe. That's why we showed that video. That's why we want to start new churches in cities like this because there's been this huge decline in Christianity. People have been leaving the church in droves in thousands. Millions of people have been running away from the church. And that, that's, not just a, that's not just reflected in, in numbers and statistics, but um, it, 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 for us in terms of the values that we will believe, the things that we be- believe the world should work like this, there should be certain sorts of virtue or certain sorts of uh, kind of moral absolutes. All of that gets eroded away and disappears. So of, of people in the Netherlands who would claim to be a Christian, only 49%, less than half, think that Christianity uh, is, uh, reflects their worldview. <laughs> so half of Christians think, oh, Christianity doesn't even really reflect what I believe who I am. So more and more, our culture, the, the world we live in, is running away from God, further and further away. It's, it's, I read a statistic in a different report recently that said of people that live in, in our country, uh, only 5% of people think that sex should be inside marriage. And some of you maybe here maybe don't agree with that. Only 5% of people. And that's the population as a whole. Amongst people who would be under the age of 30, it would be much, much less if anybody really ever believes that anymore. There'd be certain values, certain things that we would believe in that have just disappeared, that have kind of been washed away by this sort of tide of 
secularism that's kind of swept over the continent that we live in. But the thing is, is that Jesus is alive, right? That's why we're here. So, and, and Jesus, he loves his church. He's passionate about his church. And he's called us to, he sent us here to this city for a purpose. So those statistics might scare you, they might confuse you, but in some ways there's some positives about it because any sort of sense of cultural Christianity, people, people, for, for decades and decades, people would have been a Christian because their parents were Christians or their grandparents were Christians or they went to church every week, but they'd have no real faith in their heart. And all the time you'd be saying to people, well, you need to, you need to believe in Jesus. And they say, well, I kind of do already, but it wasn't really reflected in their life. And kind of all of that's disappeared now. So we almost have a bit of a blank canvas to work with, right? We're not, we're not trying to reach a whole country that already believes they're Christians. We're trying to reach a whole country who, who don't really know anything about what we believe. And we get to bring this message of hope and freedom and love into people's lives. But the thing is, you see, what, what this all means is what I'm kind of trying to illustrate to you is that for the church, we've, we've kind of become a, uh, a minority people. Whereas 50 years ago, the, the church would have been uh, a, a, a kind of a powerful force. It would have been the majority, the majority worldview, the majority of people would have, um, whether they actually worship God in any meaningful way, the majority of people would have believed that there was a God Whereas now we're very much in the minority. But that's, that's, that's something that, uh, we, that's what we're going to look at this morning, what it means to be a minority and what it means for us to be sent here by Jesus. Because we, we read John 17 and we read the accounts, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and we see this man who was sent here by God, incarnated into, our, into his culture displaying how we should live, that we're also being sent by God, and we can live as incarnated people into our culture to reach the people around us. So what does it mean to, to live as a, as a minority? Well, first of all, there's, there's a few shifts that have been taking place. There's three shifts that I want to look at, first of all. Uh, one is from, we've shifted from, if you're a believer in Jesus, from darkness to light. It says in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's a beautiful promise that we get, the life we get to live as believers in Jesus, that we've moved from darkness to light. This fundamental shift has taken place in our hearts. And the second shift that's taken place that's kind of outlined in this passage is we were once of the world and we're now not of the world. So this is what it says in verse 14, which we read already. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. It's saying that, that the fundamentals of, of how we're defined, what we believe, what we think um, has, has changed now. We've got this new identity as those that are in the light that we're no longer citizens of this earth. The Bible says we're citizens of heaven. Actually, we're kind of residents of another land, of another kingdom. We're not of this world anymore. God's called us to live in a, a different way, to reflect a different way of thinking. 
to live out our lives in a completely different way. Now, the thing is, you could put those two things together of the world and then the shift to not of the world and the shift from darkness to light. You can think, well, if God saved us and added us into his family, we're citizens of heaven, we're not of this world anymore, then surely, you know, should we just all become kind of monks? We'll all just go and live in a monastery. We'll all kind of hide away from the world. You know, we can pray and worship and we can enjoy God, but we can live a kind of closed off existence. That's one danger that, that can happen is you can, you can look at the evils of the world, all the stuff that we hate, and you can just kind of hide yourself away. We're just behind closed doors. We'll lock the doors here on Sunday. It can just be us. No, we won't welcome anyone else in. Or we could kind of become just sort of fundamentalists, just getting angry at the world. We could just go on Facebook every day and shout at how bad everything is, how we disagree with what everybody says. We could just get cross with everybody. That's a danger we could fall into. We could either just lock ourselves away or we can just stand on the fringes of society and just shout, just tell everybody what's wrong. Don't offer any solutions, but just get angry at people. And that's, that's often where... Christians will, will find themselves. But there's another extreme which you can flip the other way and, and you, you, just, you can lose any distinctiveness. You just become like the world in, in a desire to be relevant and to, to uh, communicate our message. People begin to water down what we believe. We say, well, let's just we'll hide that bit away. We'll just go and put that in a closet. We won't talk about that bit. And we, and we just water down what we believe. And in the end, we kind of just become the same as everybody else, but we just come to a building on Sunday and we sing songs, but our life isn't any different. And the, the, the message we offer isn't a message of hope or love or power, it's just the same as everyone else is, is hearing all the time. So we have to be separate, not of the world, but how we do that is important. How we are not of the world, but in the world, as this passage is saying, is really important. How do we live as this kind of minority community? How do we, we, we work out the work of Jesus, the work of the cross, of this work of creation and redemption and restoration? How do we be that sort of people in the world? How do we continue to uh, uh, bring our influence to bear, to affect society around us, to bring good to, to our planet, to witness about who Jesus is, what we believe he's done, to work out his kind of cultural mandate. How do we, as it talks about in Genesis 1, how do we bless the world? How do we seek to be fruitful in this planet? And there's a third shift that's taken place, which we were kind of outlining in all those statistics, and that's this. The church, particularly in Europe, has moved from being an institution to now we get to be completely different. We get to be a movement of people now. We get to be this minority movement. We get to follow Jesus, modeling this life of being a missionary to our culture, and we get to reach our culture as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some kind of some characteristics of a minority movement. And first of all, just to get you guys already happy, is we're, we're a hated minority. We're really living out the message of Jesus because it's what he says here in this passage that we've read already. He says, I've given them your words and the world has hated them 
because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus said again in Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. One John says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Some jolly verses there to start your morning. Some of you are still thinking, I don't even know what time it is, you know, the clocks have changed. <laughs> like, and this guy's talking about everybody hating us. What's going on? The thing is, when, when Jesus' disciples, when they heard him pray this in John 17, or when they read about it later, they heard John's account, they would have taken his words really seriously. They wouldn't have just thought, oh, it's nice that we get this kind of written thing of how Jesus prayed, woohoo. They wouldn't have thought, oh, well, the world hates us. Oh, that's okay, we'll just, you know, that, that will be all right. We'll figure it out in the end. They, they, would have, they would have had to sit and deeply kind of ponder this and think, what does this mean for my life? If Jesus' disciples, as far as we know, all of them were killed, were martyred for what they believed. This wasn't a small thing for them. They took this seriously. And they understood sometimes in our kind of nice, comfortable, prosperous culture, we forget actually that sometimes following Jesus is costly. It involves suffering. It involves pain and difficulty. It involves sometimes people hating us. And those disciples would have known real hate. Even in our society, another statistic for you. Um, in, uh, in 1966, uh, the, basically this, this survey did some research into kind of four areas, four kind of spheres of life. Uh, science, media, uh, political parties, and the church. And they asked everybody, who do you trust most out of those four, science, media, political parties, and the church. In 1966, everyone trusted science the most, and uh, church the next, church was number two, and then media, and then politicians, not surprisingly, were bottom of the list. Two years ago, they asked the same question, and uh, number one was science, number two, media, number three, politicians, number four, the church. You think that? People in this country are saying, we actually, we, we trust politicians more than the church. Can you believe that? Well, sorry, I know your dad's a politician, so I've met him and I trust him. <laughs> Those statistics aren't true of me. But the majority of people in, in our culture is saying, well, we don't trust the church. Look at all the hypocrisy about the church. Look at all the, the evil that they've, they've committed in this world. How could you trust the church? I saw this week, uh, after the, 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 uh, the attack on, uh, on London, Lots of people were writing on Twitter, you know, hash pray for London. And loads of people were getting really cross about it. Like, how can you say pray for London? How can you, all these faiths and beliefs, they're to blame for all this atrocity. How can you say pray for London? And there's this whole millions of people who, who really kind of hate us for what we believe. They might not say it to our faces, but when they, when they, they come up against some of the things that we stand for, then... Uh, they're not going to like us very much. We have to understand if we're going to really live out what we believe, it does mean we'll be fundamentally different. We'll, we, we will be different. Yeah. We will sometimes there'll be things that we believe that we think, oh, that's, 
I don't know if my neighbors are going to understand that. There's something of the message of the gospel which is offensive to people's hearts. And that means sometimes to, to stand for Jesus, to really uh, build a church that, that, uh, that honors him, that follows him, to live lives that follow Jesus, means that we have to do the same as the disciples did. We have to ponder and think about, what does this mean for me? What does this mean? Am I just going to pretend? Am I just going to be a Christian on a Sunday and just be a regular guy in the week? Or am I going to hold firm? We're going to talk about it next week. How am I going to hold fast to truth, to what we believe the word of God says? How are we going to stand firm on that? How are we going to live our lives in ways that, that live as worship to God? With how we, how we use our body, our sexuality, with how we talk to people, how we gossip, just all the different facets of life. Will we stand? Will you stand? Will you say, no, I'm going to live for Jesus in all these things? None of that is easy. And it takes, doesn't, takes more than courage. It takes God working in you. The second thing, second uh, characteristic of a minority movement is that, as I've been saying, we, we're, called to be, we're called to be distinctive. Jesus said in, in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. They are in the world. We've, Jesus has sent us here. And we've called to be this chosen, sent minority people to be distinctive, to stand out. Let me just tell you a couple of stories just to help, um, help illustrate this. Um, I was gonna drink that water over there, but the cup has fallen down. That, Joe, don't worry if there's not any. You can get me some water, that's kind of you. My wife's great, isn't she? <laughs> Let me just read this story. This is a brilliant story. I'm just going to read it out because it will work better that way rather than me trying to retell it in my own words because I'm mispronouncing things. Thank you very much. On May, uh, May the 28th, 1992, some of you may know this story already, a guy called Vedrin Smolovich, who was the principal cellist in the Sarajevo Opera, he dressed in his formal black tails, and he, oh, wait a minute, do you know what, to help you? There he is right there, can you see him? It's our friend, Vedran. Probably not pronouncing his name right. He sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play uh, Albinoni's Adagio in G minor. The site was outside a bakery in his neighborhood where 22 people, um, waiting in line for bread had been killed the previous day. So it's an amazingly brave act, courageous and moving and emotional. He said, during the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, Sarajevo is now the, the capital, or one, a major city anyway, I'm not, not sure if it's the capital of what we know as Bosnia. More than 10,000 people were killed in three years in that city. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers while struggling each day to find food and water. Smolovich lived near one of the few working bakeries 
where a long line of people had gathered when a shell exploded. He rushed to the scene, was overcome with grief at the carnage. So for the next 22 days, one for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon, which was beauty. And he became known as the cellist of Sarajevo. And he not only performed outside the bakery, but continued to unleash his music, the beauty of his music in graveyards, funerals, in the rubble of buildings. He said, I never stopped playing my music through the siege. He said, my weapon was my cello. And although uh, completely vulnerable, he was never shot. It was this, as if the, the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people, a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. There's his great quote at the end. A reporter asked him if he was crazy for playing in a war zone. Then Smolovich replied, why do you not ask if they are crazy for shelling my city? <laughs> and, you know, in the... It's, it's, a, it's not just a nice story. It is an amazing story of one man's bravery and courage. But, you know, in, in our broken world, we get to do the same thing. I can't play the cello, but we get to play a different tune. We get to tell a different story of hope, of beauty, of light, because we are children of the light. We get to tell it, we get to display it to the city around us. Because you, you might think, hold on a second, you know, that was, that was a war-torn city. You know, that was, it was, that was their civilization kind of ending. But the thing is, there would be lots of people who would, who would look at the world around us now and, and say that civilization is, is in chaos. And you might, we're deceived because we think, well, we're prosperous, we've got money, we've got jobs, we've got cars, there's so much things we can be happy about. But the decline in so many areas of life, the decline of morals, of virtue, of values, the mess all around us, all the, the huge problems that even our continent faces that nobody knows what to do with. These thousands and thousands of refugees coming out of uh, Syria and no one knowing what, where do we put them, what do we do with them, no one even knowing what do we do with the crisis in that country, all sorts of social problems in our own nation and nobody has any real answers. And a lot of people aren't really even doing anything about it. Even just in people's lives, the, 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 the brokenness, the dysfunction in family life around us. And we, we, we can do what this guy did. We get to play a different story. Let me tell you an, another, I'm gonna go, this was 20 years ago, I'm gonna go further back in history now to uh, AD 250, you guys like, like history, right? I love history. This is a story about the plague of Cyprian, which hit Rome in about AD 250, so it was coming towards the end of the Roman Empire, and it was a plague that lasted for at least 20 years. I'm not quite sure how long. It was, it was a pandemic. They think it was probably smallpox, which fortunately smallpox is now eradicated. 
I think. And originally when this plague hit Rome, the Romans, they, they blamed it on the Christians because Christianity would have been a relatively new phenomenon in their city and they blamed it on the Christians. You guys are to blame for this. Let me read this about what, what happened. It said uh, at the, the height of what became known as the plague of Cyprian, it was estimated some 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome and many Romans fled the city. Most nobles, doctors, statesmen, and priests, so all the kind of powers and authorities, all the people of any influence in the city, they all left, and they left the poor to suffer. Instead of fear and self-preservation, Christians quickly invaded the city and cared for the poor and the sick and the dying at great risk to their own lives. I mean, when you've got a city that's caught in this contagion of smallpox, you don't want to run into, you, don't, you want to get as far away from there as you can. But they did the total opposite. They literally invaded the city to serve. Because what they understood was simple, is that God loved humanity. And so for them to love God back, they realized that they were supposed to love and care for others, just as Jesus did. During this time period, Christians not only buried their own, but also pagans who had died without proper funds for burial. Reports estimate some churches fed 3,000 people a day. Once the plague hit Alexandria, the Christians there risked their lives performing simple deeds of washing the sick, offering food and water, and consoling the dying. And then at the end it says, Rome tried to even emulate this model, but it failed because for Christians it was done out of love, not duty. And then the people of Rome began to marvel, and they often whispered in the streets, look how they love one another. (laughs) That's remarkable. And we're we're called to be this distinctive minority. And what happened in Rome was that, in a way, one virus was overcome with another virus. You know, that's what a vaccination is, isn't it? It's just a small hit of of the virus to vaccinate you from it. And the the Christians kind of came as this vaccination. They came as this kind of new virus. to. That's that's how Christianity works. It comes in and it just starts to affect people around you. And sometimes even without you really noticing, without you even trying, you know, we sometimes find that that, uh, people will say things to us and they've just noticed things about how we live. We neighbors, people at the school, and they've just seen a glimpse, we've not done anything deliberate, but they've just seen a glimpse of something different about you guys. There's something that I don't understand. And that begins to affect the people around you. You don't even, it's not necessarily about a deliberate kind of acts of love of caring for the poor, just how we carry ourselves, how we relate to people. We can change the world around us. And I remember before before we, we moved here, talking to a, a few Dutch Christians who lived outside of Amsterdam, and uh, they were surprised that we wanted to move here, to be honest. Because for many Dutch Christians, Amsterdam would be a, a place of kind of vice, of, of evil, not a very nice place. And they would say, oh, actually, you know, we're, we're happy outside of the city. And they were encouraged, they were like, you go, we'll pray for you, but they didn't want any, any part of it. That was nice of them, wasn't it? And for many people, that would be 
the view of, of, of this city. It's, it's not something, we, we don't want to go near it. You know, we're, we're going to retreat away. Whereas those Christians in Rome, they didn't retreat away. They ran into the city to care and love for it. And that's what we get to do. We get to in, not run away and retreat, but in, invade our city with the love of Jesus. And that's what those disciples did that Jesus is praying for here. They moved in, they stayed, they gave their lives for this. And it, it means that's true for us. We're not of the world, but we're very much in it, right? We're very much in it, we're part of it. And maybe this all sounds completely bonkers, completely, does people know what bonkers mean? Is that just an English phrase? It probably is very English, isn't it, bonkers? It's crazy, ludicrous, silly. You might, you might listen to what I'm saying and think, well, what are you talking about? But wh- what, else, what else are you gonna live your life for? You know? I wanna give my life for something that matters. Yeah, yeah? and this is it. And I guess you also might think, well, this just sounds terrifying. <laughs> this sounds petrifying. Like we're hated and the world's all falling apart. It's a very kind of bleak view of the world. Well, the other characteristic of a minority movement is that we are a powerful movement. In, uh, in John 16, Jesus says this, nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. His disciples are saying, why do you need to die? Just stay here with us. It's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. In John 14, it says, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, we've been sent, but sent with us. God sent himself, the Holy Spirit, to come and live in our lives to help us. So we're not just kind of alone, just sort of flailing against the tide. We have the power of God. And that completely changes how we consider things. It completely changes how we react and respond. We're not just kind of toiling alone. We're not just facing up to the challenges in our world, thinking what we do, but we live in a, believe in a God who cares, and a God who heals, a God of power and love and might. You know, just consider for a moment, you might, you might work in an office and you think, oh, how do I ever tell any of these people about Jesus? They don't even know I'm a Christian. How do I affect anything that goes on here? Consider for a moment what would happen if maybe for two or three months, every day during your lunch break, what would happen if you just walked around that building and just prayed, you know? Just ask God to move. I believe that prayer works, right? Because it does work. And Jesus tells us to, to pray. Pray, see what God does. Start praying for people who don't know Jesus. Pray for people on your street, family members, people you work with. Pray, ask God, see what he does. And then finally, we're sent with power. We're a powerful minority. Finally, we're a holy minority. See, because in in the midst of this broken world, 
This passage says that we've been sanctified in truth. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Titus puts it like this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, you, you might think, I've been trying to live in this world, but the pressures, the pains, and when people talk about holiness, it might almost seem like a negative thing that you, we can often view holiness as a negative, as something to be scared of, an expectation that we can't live up to. But the, the beauty is that if you're here and you believe in Jesus, he, he lived the life that you can't live. He died for you to set you free, to make you holy, to give you this wonderful new life in him. So holiness is no longer a negative, crushing burden. And you think, well, how do I live in the world around me? Because you think, surely it'd be easier if we just escaped. Surely it'd be easier if we just hid away. We could be holy then. I can't be holy in the world. And it's a challenge, but we have the grace of God with us. And holiness is no longer a, a, a crushing burden, but it's this beautifully positive thing because we get to live out what Jesus has already done for us. We get to live out the grace on our lives. We're not trying to earn anything. We're not trying to uh, show off. We're not trying to somehow win God's favor. We already have his favor. We already have his love, his grace, and we're just living out all that he's done in us. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going we're gonna to take our gift day offering. If you're here as a guest, you don't in any way need to get involved. You're more than welcome just to sit and watch. That's completely fine. We're not after your money. We're really not. And if you're here and you think, well, you know, I am involved, but I didn't bring my wallet or whatever, <laughs> that's fine too. You can just screw it down on a bit of paper. Just write an IOU in and throw it in the bucket. Uh, we'd love to get involved. We're, we're, what we're doing is we're, we're giving into this wider mission that God's called us to, not just reaching this city, but others as well. And everything we've been talking about, of being a distinctive minority, we want to build churches that are like that in cities all over the world. And that takes money to do that. So that's what we're giving into this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to sing a song of worship now. And then uh, uh, if you've got kids, go and get your kids bring them back. Some of you for the little kids will have been given a little tickety thing, so remember to take that, otherwise you won't get your kid back if you don't have your ticket. So go and get your kids, and then we'll, when, when everyone's back in together, we're all gonna come and give together. Why don't you stand together? And if you've got kids, get them. <laughs> 